Let's turn once again to the book of Deuteronomy, uh, chapter 19, looking at verses 15 through 21 this morning. Fifth book of Moses, Deuteronomy 19, verses 15 through 21. Uh, These are rules for maintaining uh, procedural justice. This is God's word, so let's be sure to listen carefully to it. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother." So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and the rest shall hear and fear, and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Why do we so desperately feel the need all of the time to be right. Why are we always seeking to justify ourselves? And why do we hate being wrong so much? Do you know what I'm talking about? You experience this? You know, when a dispute breaks out amongst friends or family members or even in online spaces, we are ready to fight tooth and nail to establish the fact that we are in the right. And sometimes when disputes break out in the court of public opinion and may even make their way to a civil court, we are driven by this urge to be right. I think it's one of the most powerful urges of the human heart. But why? Why is that? Well, as Christians... We, we believe that there is an end to everything. A day of moral resolution, a day of reckoning, a day when God will give perfect justice. As it is written, God will bring every deed into judgment, every secret thing, whether good or evil. And that means, ultimately, that all of life is a kind of courtroom Drama. All of life, private and public, is a courtroom drama awaiting the final verdict. As we confess in the creed, uh, we, we believe that he will come to judge the living and the dead. And even though people don't like hearing about divine judgment today, we, we can't get rid of, we can't escape this deep embedded sense of right and wrong that cries out for moral resolution, that cries out for 
a verdict. And in the gospel of his son, God promises to give justice when he judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. As I said, in our passage this morning, we're looking at laws concerning witnesses in legal proceedings. It's what this text is directly about. But lest we miss the, <clears throat> the forest for the trees, I think it's important to step back and, and to see the big picture. The fact that the incomplete and imperfect justice rendered by human institutions in this fallen world, do in fact anticipate the final and perfect justice God will give on the last day. A day is coming when God will give his people justice at the appearance of the Son of Man. And that means that justice in this life administered by human institutions is is always provisional. But as we, as we await that great day, God wants his people to pursue justice as much as it is possible and insofar as it depends upon us in this fallen world. And these laws are given as foundational principles of justice in cases of accusation in a court of law. And so let's look at our passage in two parts. First, the requirement of multiple witnesses in verse 15. And secondly, the rules in cases of malicious witnesses in verses 16 through 21. One of the most foundational principles of justice is laid down for us in verse 15. Take a look at it again. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. Now, the purpose of this law is obviously to protect innocent people from false accusations. And that happens all the time. Deuteronomy 19 verse 15 protects the innocent against the danger, this danger by establishing a substantial standard of proof. A substantial standard of proof must be met before a conviction is secured. See, Israel's judges were not allowed to condemn, notice the language, anyone of anything on the basis of a single witness. This was a foundational principle of justice. Supporting evidence was always required to secure a guilty verdict. And this is a timeless principle of procedural justice that remains every bit as authoritative under the old covenant as it was under uh, under the new covenant as it was under the old covenant. In fact, this is this is I think this is fascinating. This is one of the most frequently repeated principles of Old Testament procedural justice within the New Testament itself. It appears again and again in passages like Matthew 18, verse 16, which has to do with church discipline. John 8, verse 17, 2 Corinthians 13, 1, 1 Timothy 5, 19, and Hebrews 10, 28, all appeal 
to this principle in Deuteronomy 19, verse 15. Which raises the question for us personally, how often do we rush to judgment whenever we hear a bad report about someone else? That's a question I think we ought to reflect on. Do you ever rush to judgment when someone says something bad about someone else? Do you believe every negative report that you see on social media or in a juicy bit of gossip? And have you gone online lately? This stuff is everywhere. How quick are you to assume the worst? And how slow are you to believe the best? Are you a cynic? Is a question we should ask ourselves. Are we cynics? Or do we exercise what has been called the judgment of charity? Make no mistake and do not misunderstand me. The Bible does not teach us to be naive fools. Okay, the Bible does not teach us to be naive. As we'll see in the following verses, Moses goes on to require those in positions of authority to take every allegation seriously by conducting diligent investigation. Verse 18. But there is nothing wise, there is nothing mature, and there is nothing just about rushing to judgment. And last week, one of you were sharing with me about how you served on a, a jury for a capital crime trial, and you were telling me about how before it even went to trial, potential members of the jury were already rushing ahead to judgment, ready to render a verdict without even considering any of the evidence. Now, thankfully, those individuals did not serve on the jury, but how often does that kind of thing happen? happens all of the time, especially in the court of public opinion, doesn't it? I think a question we should ask ourselves is, what kind of judge would you want presiding over your trial? Would you want a judge that would just throw out the evidence and rush ahead to rendering a verdict? Or would you want a judge who would carefully consider the evidence, hear the case, before reaching a verdict? Well, the answer is obvious, right? It's exactly what this law requires, too, along with a substantial standard of proof in the form of multiple witnesses. Now, in difficult cases, when they arise, and they do arise where supporting evidence, corroborating evidence is lacking, even after a diligent process of investigation, I think the Bible requires us to err on the side of acquittal. Even with the possibility of allowing a guilty person to go unpunished, which is a, a real danger, that is to be preferred, according to Scripture, to the condemnation of an innocent person who is falsely accused. I think this reflects the same instinct not to put to death the innocent, not to corrupt justice. And so the burden of proof falls upon the accuser rather than the defendant. Now, incidentally, as an aside, this is why it is so important, so vital to speak up for those, particularly those who have been abused, if you have evidence 
to support it. You have evidence to prove it. If, if you know about it, you got to raise your voice. Scripture requires us to speak up, to raise our voice for those who have no voice. Indeed, the execution of justice, we need to appreciate this, it is never merely dependent upon a few individuals sitting on the bench. It requires the faithful participation of the larger community. Justice cannot be enacted simply from the bench. If there are not witnesses, think about it this way, if there are not witnesses who are willing to call a spade a spade, biblically you cannot secure a verdict without multiple witnesses or supporting evidence. And so, as an aside, we should note, we should note the importance of doing that, our responsibility in the process of maintaining justice. Unfortunately, as our civilization moves further away from biblical principles of justice, just basic principles of justice, we could say, we are seeing a rise in the presumption of guilt until proven innocent, rather than the reverse, aren't we? Presumption of innocence until proven guilty. And, and we're seeing that happen in all kinds of ways in our society today. It's a frightening and dangerous development in our culture, but it must not be permitted to happen among God's people. It must not happen in the church. And although the world may be unjust, we must always remember and live in light of the fact that there is a final day of judgment. There is a day of perfect justice that's coming. And that means no abuse, no crime, no evil deeds done in the dark, no mistreatment, no wrong will go overlooked or go unpunished. You see, human courts of law have always been and, and will always be limited and provisional. We've experienced that, I think, in our own lives. Judicial systems may err, but those who have been mistreated, those who have been oppressed, those who have been taken advantage of and abused in secret without anyone to speak up for them, the gospel says that they will be avenged by the judge of all the earth who has all of the evidence and knows every secret thing. And so in the world of the Bible, those who think that they can carry out secret evil deeds in the dark, according to scripture, they are naive fools. A day of reckoning is coming, and the judge of all the earth will do what is right. And this is something that Moses reminds us of near the end of the book of Deuteronomy. Remember, when we look at one portion of Scripture, it's really important to interpret it, understand it, in the light of the whole. And Moses reminds us elsewhere of judgment at the end. In fact, when Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Paul is quoting Deuteronomy. He's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 35. So make, make no mistake about it. There will be perfect justice in the end. God will provide 
perfect moral resolution. As Paul puts it, on that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. Did you hear that? When according to my gospel, it's part of the good news that God will judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Nothing will be swept under the sordid and bloody rug of human history. In the meantime, we've got to do the best we can with what we've got, with the evidence that we have, and we must exercise the judgment of charity and maintain standards of evidentiary proof before convicting anyone of anything. After all, isn't that precisely how we would want to be treated? See, that's the ethical principle that really clarifies so much for us, isn't it? Whenever we are personally accused of anything, there's no question about this. We, we want to be presumed innocent until proven guilty. We want to be treated with the judgment of charity. And that's exactly how we ought to treat other people, especially when there are formal and public accusations made. As Lord Jesus declared in Matthew 7, verse 12, Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. This is the law and the prophets, because it is the perfect distillation of the demands of love. Now that takes us to the next part of our passage, which uh, has rules in cases of malicious witnesses in verses 16 through 21. So look with me again at the next section, starting in verse 16. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days. Notice that this law does not allow accusers to remain anonymous. No anonymous accusations. I had a professor in seminary, I guess it's the habit of some seminarians to complain about one professor to another, right? and uh, his policy was anytime a student would come into his office and start speaking negatively about another professor, he would take them by the hand to that other professor's office and say, okay, we've got something to talk about. <laughs> All right. A lot of wisdom in that. No anonymous accusations. Nor does the law allow for trials to take place in secret. Now, of course, just as another aside here, we need to exercise wisdom in the application of law to specific scenarios and situations. There are, of course, situations where it would be profoundly unwise if someone brought attention to an abusive situation that they are caught up in and you immediately took them into the presence of their abuser and said, let's talk about this. That's not what the law is requiring here. But in the majority of situations, the law of Moses gave defendants the right to face their accusers in open court. And all this takes place in a solemn context which Moses describes in verse 17. As before the Lord before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days. I think this description implies that however imperfect human courts may be, 
God himself is present and at work through duly appointed human authorities. That's how that statement applies that, I think. They're, they're to come before the Lord, before those who are in authority, and it implies that God is providentially at work even through imperfect human institutions. One of the implications of that is we, we ought to treat human authority structures in the family and in the church and in the state with deep respect. In verse 18, Moses goes on to explain that judges shall inquire diligently. Simply put, every single accusation is to be treated with the utmost seriousness. It's not to be shrugged off. Although multiple witnesses are necessary to secure a verdict, a single accusation necessitates a diligent investigation. You have to have multiple witnesses for a conviction, but one witness requires an investigation. Our book of church order uh, in the PCA affirms this principle of justice for church courts when it states that Listen, it is the duty of all church sessions and presbyteries to exercise care for those subject to their authority. They shall with due diligence and great discretion demand from such persons satisfactory explanations concerning reports affecting their Christian character. That's what the book of church order says, reflecting this basic biblical principle of justice. Now, after laying down the, this basic requirement for diligent inquiry, Moses goes on to explain in verse 18 that if the witness is a false witness and has accused a brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he meant to do to his brother. In this way, the evil would be purged from their midst. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Now, this warning, at the very least, is meant to make us think twice before we accuse anybody of anything. And it ought to make us tremble to dare to utter something untrue about someone else. According to verses 19 through 21, anyone who falsely accuses another person ought to suffer precisely whatever penalty he intended to inflict on that other individual. This is, this is not only proportional, it's also poetic justice. And we see it happen time and time again in Scripture. I'll just mention one example. Think about Haman and the book of Esther and how he was hung from the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. But wait a minute, you might say, okay, we're, we're Christians. We're Christians. How should we apply this principle of eye for eye and tooth for tooth in Deuteronomy 19 in light of Jesus' apparently contradictory teaching in his Sermon on the Mount where our Lord declares, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. 
I think perhaps the most important qualification that needs to be made when comparing these two passages, Deuteronomy 19 and Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, we need to say up front, Jesus is not contradicting the law. In fact, he just a few verses before this, he said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. What I think Jesus is doing is he's correcting misinterpretations and a misapplication of the law. That's what Jesus is doing. I think another important point is to recognize that there is a big difference between a court of law and personal retaliation. Right? There's a big difference between the responsibility a court of law has to render justice and what we might call vigilante justice. Right? Courts of law are obligated to impose just penalties in due proportion to a crime. A court of law to sweep a crime under the rug and fail to punish a crime would be a miscarriage of justice. But an eye for an eye was, was never intended to serve as a guideline for personal retaliation. I think this is the misinterpretation and misapplication of the law that Jesus is correcting in the Sermon on the Mount. The eye for eye principle in Deuteronomy 19.21 was intended to serve as a sentencing guideline for duly appointed judges who have the God-given responsibility of punishing convicted criminals after going through the process of a fair trial. Right? So we need to understand Jesus is not contradicting the law, and we need to understand the difference between personal retaliation and the responsibility of courts of law. With that said, um, I think Jesus is correcting a misunderstanding of the eye-for-eye idea where he calls his followers to a life of personal nonviolence and even love for one's enemies. Courts of law are obligated to impose just penalties in due proportion for a crime. Again, for a court of law to fail to do that is to be guilty of a miscarriage of justice. But even when a criminal justice system fails... I think we also need to say that individual Christians must refrain from taking the law into their own hands. These are all important things for us to remember as Christians as we reflect upon these laws for procedural justice. Now, we could, we could end the sermon there. But I think if we conclude our sermon at this point, that we're actually missing what the passage is ultimately about. Because I think ultimately this passage is bearing prophetic witness to Jesus Christ as the one who will administer perfect justice as the judge of all the earth and the one who is our faithful witness and our advocate before the Father. So just think about those ideas with me for a few moments. For those who suffer injustice. For those who have been let down by human institutions, this passage bears witness 
to God's concern for and his commitment to justice. But you see, in this fallen world, some of us know all too well about the shortcomings of human institutions and their failures to render justice, to render right judgment. Things have happened to you. Things have been done to you. Wrongs have been committed against you. And you're left longing for justice. So what do you do? What do you do? Well, of course, by all lawful means, we ought to pursue justice here and now. But at the same time, I think many of us can identify with the widow in Luke chapter 18, crying out day after day for justice. Do you remember the, the story of the widow in, in Luke 18? She, she represents all of God's people. She represents the church according to Jesus in Luke 18 verse 7. And in the parable, she cries out for justice. But the judge, who neither feared God nor respected man, couldn't be bothered. He didn't want to hear her case. She, he just shrugged it off until he finally got so annoyed with her persistence that eventually he said, you know what, I'm just going to give her justice to get her off my back. And after telling the parable, Jesus said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Brothers and sisters, this is part of our Christian hope. That when the Son of Man appears, he will give you justice. He will bring perfect moral resolution to all of the wrongs of this world and all of the wrongs that have been committed against you. And that's part of the good news. It's part of the gospel that one day there will be an end to the injustice of this world. But there's another way that I think this text bears prophetic witness to Jesus that we need to reflect on. Because Jesus is not only the judge who will give perfect justice on the day of his appearing. He is also the faithful witness according to Revelation 3.14. And as we saw earlier, he is also our advocate with the Father according to 1 John chapter 2 verse 1. You see, the truth is... We all have an accuser. We all have a malicious witness who is hell-bent on our condemnation. That's what, that's what the devil means, accuser. In Revelation 12, verse 10, he's called the accuser of our brothers. And part of what makes this so terrifying is that even though he is a liar and the deceiver of the whole world, much of what he says about us is true. There's no lack of evidence in his case against us because we have sinned. We have fallen short of the glory of God. We have broken God's Law. So there's something to the accusation. There is no lack of evidence against us. But the good news 
is that despite the case of our prosecutor, who, by the way, is the most experienced prosecutor in the history of the world, the good news is that the case of our prosecutor doesn't stand a chance against our defense. As we're assured in 1 John 2, verse 1, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We have someone who speaks on our behalf. And who is it? Who is it that raises his voice when we don't have a case ourselves? It's Jesus Christ, the righteous, who died in our place as a propitiation for our sins and who was raised for our justification the one who stood in our place condemned to satisfy the just wrath of God for our sins is the one who raises his voice on our behalf and he shuts the mouth of our accuser. You see, we do. We, we all want to be in the right. We can't escape that urge. I'm led to think it's even an aspect of our being created in the image of a righteous God. But how can we be in the right when we are so very wrong before God? If we stand before the Lord on our own, representing ourselves, we don't have a case. But here's the good news. God has not left us to ourselves. Listen to the good news of the gospel, most known verse in all of the Bible, John 3, 16, God so loved the world that he gave his son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God did not send his son into the world to condemn you, but so that you might be saved through him. So where does that leave us? What do the scriptures principally teach, kids? Scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God And what duty God requires of man. What does God require of you in the gospel? Believe in his son. Put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you have an advocate with the father who silences the mouth of your malicious accuser. And the son of man will appear one day. And he will publicly vindicate you and welcome you into his kingdom. And he will provide perfect justice. He will give you justice. Hallelujah. That is something to rejoice in. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for sending your son, Jesus, that in our place condemned he stood. And we thank you that he bore the the just wrath, the just penalty due for our sins. 
so that the mouth of the accuser would be silenced. And we thank you that in Jesus Christ, trusting in him, we can stand before you and know that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would help us to live by these words that we have heard today as we look forward to the day of the appearing of the Son of Man when he will bring with him perfect justice. And we pray all of these things in his name. Amen.